May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. This is part five, sharing Margaret Mitchell's story going back in time about 100 years. Why share her story? Now, fibromyalgia isn't a mental health illness, but it does share a lot of common features. And since May is the Mental Health Awareness Month, I thought it would be good to share some of the reasons why hearing other people's story can be helpful. When they look at some of the research, it shows that knowing or having contact with someone with a mental illness is one of the best ways to help reduce stigma. Individuals speaking out and sharing their stories can have a positive impact. When we know someone with a similar illness, it becomes less scary and more real and relatable. A 2016 review of research on addressing stigma concluded that efforts to reduce stigma and discrimination can work at the personal and population levels. The strong evidence was for anti-stigma efforts involving contact with individuals with lived experience with mental illness and efforts with a long-term commitment. When we look at this, this is from the American Psychiatric Association, a statement about stigma, prejudice, and discrimination against people with mental illness. And again, I'm not saying that fibromyalgia is a mental health problem, although many people with fibromyalgia may have some coexisting psychiatric conditions. It is a problem that has similar parallels. And there are many other people with fibromyalgia, some celebrities, and many you may be aware of. Some, when I did an internet search that show up, include Lady Gaga, Morgan Freeman, Sinead O'Connor, Susan Flannery, among others. And knowing that other people are going through struggles helps, again, make you feel like you're not alone. So as we continue hearing more about Margaret's story, I just want to let you know that I'm really happy to have you join me, whether you're going for a walk, you're doing some chores around the house, you're going on a trip somewhere, you're on your way to work, wherever you are, I'm so grateful that you've invited me to be part of your day Remember, if you haven't heard before, I am Dr. Michael Lenz. I am a medical doctor. I've been in practice now for 26 years. I am a 
internal medicine doctor, a pediatrician, and lifestyle medicine physician. I try to weave the best of medical management with the best of lifestyle medicine. While I am a doctor, I am not your doctor, and this does not replace a visit with your own physician. Please discuss all signs and symptoms with your own personal doctor. Hopefully this will be a starting point on your journey to learn more. This is intended for those with fibromyalgia, for their loved ones who don't understand it but want to learn, and for physicians who want to up their game on fibromyalgia. And now, continuing on to this week's episode, where we will learn more about Margaret's story. Picking up where we left off at around age 22, she had been so charming it became legendary. Many men were in love with her. She was pretty and intelligent with a sparkling manner and fearlessness, which is most engaging that most men adored her. However, she was tiny, only four foot eleven in low heels, and it was hard to keep her weight above one hundred pounds. She also carried herself very well and boasted of an athlete's physicality. She could dance all evening long, yet arise the following day early to swim, to camp in the or to hunt possum at night. Yet even her physical grace and energy pill beside her social charm. No one matched her talent for a good talk and lively conversation. Infinitely curious about everything, she possessed intelligence and wit to match. People frequently noted her forthrightness, frankness, and the freedom of her talk. Still, she could offer the keenest and otherwise most outrageous observations without ever or seldom offending. She had elevated flattery to an art form. Melf Men fell upon her like wolves. While she relished male company and flaunted her collection of suitors, marriage failed to interest her. Sex repulsed her. Those opposing drives highlight her divergent tendencies of the old divided self of the good chaste Margaret battling the hell-raising Peggy. When Alan Eady, her most important suitor, walked into her life, she was in the blackest depression age 19, in her profound slump, as she called it, she found Alan so helpful and perfect to help keeping her going. She admitted that her moods of black depression alternated with the restless emotional nature and restless mischief. Too much surplus energy, she snorted. When I get out of this house again, I shall probably raise the devil due to the aforementioned energy. Overcharging the batteries, I should call it. I can't do any constructive work with any line with a date every night and something going on every day, she cried. I can't concentrate. I feel like a dynamo going to waste. I have possibilities if energies are just turned in the proper channels. I keep my life filled and speed it up so that I can cheat myself into believing that I am happy and contented. If I don't keep busy and dated up, I always get into mischief, so I rush around as much as possible. Her friends started getting married, and she felt confused over her decisions about whom she should marry among all her suitors. As her own will to stay single and avoid marriage failed, she gave in to the pursuit of an aggressive man. At age 22, she was engaged to Barian Bernard Upshaw. 
She had known him since she was 17. Due to academic reasons, her fiancé had a checkered military career. He did not last long at the Annapolis Naval Academy. He had re-enrolled at the University of Georgia one more time, but failed to complete his degree there. He returned to his hometown within the year, and the city directories listed him as an agent for what or whom it's not clear. Employment was always a problem for him. According to his mother, he could always find a job but never keep one long. His first girlfriend remembered him as a peculiar fellow. He was perpetually moneyless. He frequented her house but could never afford to treat her. After eventually divorcing Margaret, he ran through three more wives. He contested none of them. Until his death, he had lacked any real home. He floated across the country from Atlanta to Raleigh, Asheville, Honolulu, Phoenix, Galveston, and then back again. In the coastal Texas city, he finally ended his life by leaping from a hotel window in 1949. Tuberculosis and alcohol plagued him perpetually. Margaret's family remembered him as dangerously unstable. Margaret herself charged him with beating her on two occasions. His former roommate and friend never referred to his violence. Still, he did characterize him as excitable, headstrong, and prone to wild ideas. What possibly could Margaret have seen in him? Nervous Breakdown Margaret had always worried about money, and her husband's shadowy jobs and vacillating income exacerbated her deepest fears. When we look at what we learn about both Margaret and her first husband, her first husband likely had ADHD based on the descriptions of him. Perhaps the spontaneity, curiosity, impulsiveness, and creativity may have drawn Margaret to him. Many of those same traits applied to Margaret. Yet, he also posed many challenges due to his difficulty with emotional self-regulation. Additional struggles included keeping a job and attending to his obligations as a provider and a husband. Sadly, he continued to have battles that eventually led to him taking his own life. His struggles only worsened Margaret's ability to get through every day. It aggravated her anxieties and her fears. ADHDers have a more challenging time with self-regulation. She worked hard to balance that with her husband's great difficulties in maintaining a job aggravated things. However, it did allow her to step into the gap by trying to find a job. When she went to look for a job, she found difficulties in initiating a career. When searching for a job as a writer, she faced many rejections before finally getting her first job, although somewhat through an overstatement on her resume. When she finally did get a position, she worked six days a week into the night. She also wrote book reviews for the magazine's editorial page and some romantic and gossip columns. She also had non-writing tasks that demanded her attention, including copywriting. She helped proofread all of the material the magazine cover published. She hated proofreading. Her abysmal spelling and punctuation complicated the job. 
She is now under pressure to provide steady income and to do that, and she has to work for very long hours. She hated much of her job. Well, she did like the creativity in writing stories, but that was a big struggle when she had to do all of the proofreading. On another podcast, it's been said that it takes twice as long to get half as much done if you have ADHD, and that would have been a big struggle when she had so much on her plate. She had stretched her experiences in real life on her resume to just to get a position, and now she did not want to prove it that she couldn't handle it. Moving on, she had a slightly distorted admiration for a large alcoholic capacity. For a petite frame of 4 foot 11, 100 pounds, she had a large alcohol capacity, suggesting that she used alcohol at higher levels to help relax, which is not uncommon for people with ADHD to help self-medicate the sense of feeling overwhelmed with alcohol. The only problem is alcohol as in most other coping strategies that people use for ADHD, causes significant issues. These observations are interesting because the increased stress and untreated ADHD likely led to the development and worsening of her fibromyalgia. She flirted enthusiastically with breaking other taboos for Southern ladies as she nurtured her image as a hell-raising journalist. Although she had the habit from her father as long as she lived, she smoked with a vengeance. Nicotine is a stimulant that can help with concentration and ADHD symptoms, but of course it has detrimental consequences. She left no evidence of using other controlled substances. Still, she certainly knew of cocaine and on one occasion at least made a joke of its use by passing out vials of a white dust at a party and encouraging her guests to snort powdered sugar. It is unclear whether or not she used cocaine. Still, as with other substance use for untreated ADHD, it wouldn't be surprising if she had experimented with it at times. The awareness of cocaine and its related problems was not present for most people 100 years ago compared to present times, as highlighted by referring to it casually as powdered sugar. Interestingly, sugar does act in some ways similar to cocaine on the brain, just not as powerfully. Despite being a woman in a male-dominated work environment, she won respect and ad- admiration of her colleagues, men and women, for the way she made good in a challenging masculine business, asking no favors and giving none. She did it with hard sense and hard work. Her former boss wrote as a compliment, she wrote like a man. I'll let you decide what it means, but it likely represents men's low expectations of women writers at the time. I often ask people who have a history of untreated ADHD why they didn't give up when they struggled, whether going through college or getting a job as Margaret had. They will tell me there was a strong internal and external drive. It was a matter of survival for Margaret because she could not rely on her husband for a steady income. She had to overcome the lower expectation that many of her male supervisors and colleagues would have had of her abilities to do this challenging job. She was more than a good reporter, and her work was creative and had that extra something that gives color to the most straightforward story. She could characterize a person so that the reader saw him or her vividly 
and she never missed a chance to brush in a few strokes of personality. The persons Peggy interviewed were depicted so well with her words. The story could have gone without any illustrations. Her writing abilities highlight, again, the creativity that many with ADHD have. There are so many positive characteristics of having ADHD. More personally, her prose tended often to worthiness. Her usage was sometimes inept, inappropriate, or even wrong, as if striving for a fact. Her language sometimes lost its way, however. Her successful journalism anticipates the craft that went into her novel. It also showed the skills that she had cultivated since she had first picked up a pencil. She wrote so well. She had talents for narrative and an ear for the spoken word. I'm reading the end of Gone with the Wind as I'm recording this podcast with just about 200 pages left of the 1,450 or so pages. And boy, there's so many great examples of how she incorporates dialogue into the story. Moving on, since her childhood, she was a surpassing storyteller, and she brought this gift to bear in much of her journalism. She had discovered psychology herself and read passionately in the field. Some of what she read pleased her. A woman psychologist, Dr. Blanche Loveridge, wrote, There is no ailment, either organic or functional, that cannot be cured by faith, providing the super conscious mind can be reached. And the superconscious mind, she elaborated, I mean that which most people call the subconscious mind with God. So again, she's looking at understanding her own struggles and looking at what she called earlier psychologizing, really trying to get greater insight For all her various talents in turning a phrase, creating a compelling narrative, and seizing the reader's attention, she also possessed the greatest talent for delineating the individual so that she made her subjects live. And the eve of her great theme, she looked back at her days working for the journal and completely dismissed her efforts. She said, the article's I have are so dreadful that my toes curl in my shoes when I look at them, she said. It was curious. She drove herself needlessly towards some ideal that guaranteed her sense of inadequacy. In part, at least, her difficulty weigh in the most fundamental contradictions that drew her into this trade in the first place. Where did women belong? What was her proper role? This dilemma was the subject of so many of her essays. It plagued her through these days and offered no satisfying answers in her society and culture. On the contrary, it exaggerated what she felt as an individual woman. She wrote as she talked, and her essays vibrated with living voices. Her work, in short, is brimming with her virtues. Vitality, exuberance, enthusiasm, and curiosity. As we end here on today's episode, I suspect many listening may be more self-aware of their twice-exceptionality, 
of the coexistence of some high intelligence or giftedness and a condition like ADHD or fibromyalgia. Many family, friends, and physicians in your life may be unaware of these talents as you may be drowning in the presence of your fibromyalgia and related problems. I know this because of the stories my patients have shared with me of learning from others who are struggling, that you have so many talents, yet also have so many struggles, so many battles. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you enjoy the podcast and the series, please hit the like and subscribe button. Share this with others. If you would like a deeper dive into the area of fibromyalgia, check out more episodes on this podcast if you haven't already. Check out the book where I get to dive into these issues in much more detailed fashion. It's available in audiobook form as well as available in written book format. Until next week, go Team Fibro.